Hi, this is Garrett Wong, and I played Ensign Kim on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Neil Before Pod. Neil Before Blog presents... Neil Before Pod. And welcome to Neil Before Pod, the podcast that has been to the final frontier and then back again. I'm your commanding officer, Captain Craig, and I order you to have a happy first contact day. In honour of the occasion, I've set a course for Star Trek Generations, for better and for worse. I can't talk about this alone, so I'd better beam in my bridge crew to help me. Energising. Angus, welcome aboard. Oh, thanks very much. Successful beam in. I've not done this in a while. <laughs> yeah, feeling good, feeling limber. That's good. Natalie, welcome aboard. Hi. Arrive in one piece. Yeah. Do I feel a little bit funny? A little bit funny is good. I can deal with a little bit funny. Mm-hmm. As long as every part of you is where it needs to be. I don't know. Um, It's not a hard technology to operate. I'm just very stupid, so it's fine. Anyway, enough of that hilarious bit. So we are here in the midst of our viral outbreak. We are social distancing. We've gone through decontamination, whatever it takes to get here. So first of all, we are here to discuss Star Trek Generations in honour of First Contact Day, which is the negative 43rd anniversary on April the 5th. So, you know, isn't that amazing? We're getting closer. The what? First contact day is April the 5th, 2063, or it will be that day. Mm. <laughs> Suitably amazed. We are a long <laughs> way from that. Yeah. You have no idea how far away we are from that. <laughs> Will we still be podcasting when it actually comes around? What year is it presently? It's 2020. Oh, we are so fresh. The question is, will this podcast be out by the year 2063 at my current <laughs> turnaround time? <laughs> <laughs> Who knows what they'll be doing by then? It'll be like touch and go. holographic podcasts. I don't know. Or it'll just be the same. Who knows? Anyway, let's start off with a bit of off-topic. Let's do a Neil Before Rise Against segment. So, Natalie, I will pick you first. What would you like to kneel before? Uh, This week, I'm kneeling before Disney Plus. (laughs) I thought it was going to be Tiger King. (gasps) I take it back. Okay, Tiger King. 
first have you just stolen Angus's? <laughs> Maybe. Well, to be fair, stolen, it's a shared delight. So, I mean, I think you can give it to us. Like, we can both have that. Um, definitely Tiger King. And close second would probably be Disney Plus. And so, by close second, I mean, actually, now that I've been reminded of Tiger King, all I can think of is Tiger King. <laughs> <laughs> well, since it's on your mind, what is this Tiger King? I know not what this is. You don't know anything about Tiger King? I do not. Is it not all over your socials and just what everyone in your work WhatsApp group is talking about? Well, I've got that work WhatsApp group muted and <laughs> I don't really pay attention to social media. So, Unless it's about Star Trek, funnily enough. Well, that means if I sang a song to you that went something like, I saw a tiger... You wouldn't know what the next line was. That's exactly correct. Can you have a guess at what that next line might be? No. <laughs> Angus? Um, no, well, I do know what it is. But anyway, why don't you give us a, a, a quick then... summary of um, <laughs> of what Tiger King is? And, Actually, why, you, and why people should be watching like it. it's summed up in that song that Joe Exotic uh, wrote, which is, I saw a tiger and that tiger saw a man. <laughs> Tiger King is a wild, wild adventure. It will have you feeling all kinds of emotions. Um, this sounds like a press you will, release. You will, yeah. <laughs> Your face will contort. You'll be amazed. You'll be shocked. You'll be guffawing all over the place. You'll be like, how does this exist? Why is, does this exist? Why is this allowed to exist? What's happening? Oh, dear God. It's a seven-part docu-series on Netflix. Mm. Right. About? About America and their very lax wildlife-owning laws. So you can learn all about the people who take it upon themselves to have ownership of uh, primarily tigers. But there's some ligers in there. <laughs> Various exotic animals. Yeah, and the people are are even more exotic than the animals are. Dear okay. Lord, Craig, if you haven't watched this by Which tomorrow, <laughs> <laughs> only seven episodes. <laughs> I'm gonna be glad. This is how we spent our first day of quarantine. We came back from our big trip to India last Sunday, a little bit earlier than planned, and uh, we were like, "What we're we gonna do? Oh, let's watch Tiger King. Heard that was good." Seven hours later, we were like, what the hell just <laughs> happened to us? <laughs> it's, it's perfectly balanced in one of those kind of Netflix documentary ways, a bit like Making a Murderer, where the end of every episode just has you kind of hooked and waiting for the next one. So, you know, when it goes on to its little countdown to tell you the next episode's coming up, you're like, yeah, we're watching that. Yeah. <laughs> and you're not going to skip the intro because you want to see the intro. And every... Every episode is it get the the story gets crazier and crazier. It kind of follows this one guy who is just, you know, it's almost impossible to believe that he's a real person. But then you find out about him. You find out about all these kind of enemies he's made in the exotic animal collection game, and then it just gets crazier and crazier. So uh, mm-hmm. you get kind of really hooked into it. Yeah, and Joe Exotic, if you are listening, we appreciate. Uh. I mean, is it like those, you know, those other kind of documentary style TV series that you get, you know, where it's, let's all just laugh at the freaks. Let's, you know, let's laugh at these people that are less fortunate than you because, you know, you can because they're less, less fortunate, fortunate than you. Less fortunate. 
This guy roams with 1,200 tigers. He's not less fortunate than us. They're 1,200? <laughs> no, I think he had about 200. Like, no, because there's that there's that more tigers than anyone should have. I'll give there, you that. there is an element of the freak show about it because yeah. they're all, you know, a bit America. unhinged and definitely kind of strange types. And so, yeah, part of it is is that sort of sideshow. Oh, Do the tigers respect the him as, as their alpha? Or? I would say most of the time. Most of the time, but there are, Whoa, there are some crazy. accidents. I'm picturing like Chris Pratt with Velociraptors, you know, from the Jurassic oh, World series. But just give him a mullet. If he had a mullet, it. a cowboy hat, a barely hanging on eyebrow ring, wrote his own country music. Yeah, I'm yeah. pretty sure that guy in Jurassic World writes his own country music. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It has to be seen to be believed. Okay. Well, that's uh, a recommendation. I will maybe watch it, maybe not. Who knows? Oh, I think that you shouldn't deny yourself. <laughs> I deny myself a lot. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I say watch your one episode and then you tell us how you're doing. Uh, I'll see if I find time. There's lots of, you know, Star Trek repeats to be watching, so who knows? Okay, Angus, what would you like to kneel before, even though you were waxing lyrical about that one? <laughs> I'd like to kneel before a show on Disney Plus, The World According to Jeff Goldblum. (laughs) See, I heard that this was pretty scripted, like which is weird for Jeff Goldblum. Yeah, um, Yeah. I I don't even know how we came across it. I must have been searching for something else, or just kind of browsing through. And I didn't even know that Disney would have uh, another docu series starring, produced by probably partially written by Jeff Goldblum. You and everything. He basically, there's like 12 episodes, I think they're about 30 minutes long each, and he goes, uh, each one covers a different topic, and he just sort of goes and investigates uh, this topic and in his own inimitable way. And, yeah, I find it captivating. I find it enthralling just watching him, and even, I don't know how much of it is kind of put on, or if this if he really is kind of as eccentric as he seems. No, I don't know. But he, he's just the star of the show and just kind of, it doesn't really matter what he's talking about. I'd watch him and just watch his crazy mannerisms and just <laughs> sing, dances and kind of just the way he kind of skips through life whenever he's investigating these things is amazing. So it's it's been quite a delight to have discovered on there. It was one of the major selling points of Disney Plus when they first announced it. It was one of their kind of earliest original content things right. it's almost like Disney plug stuff into an algorithm be like what do people like Marvel Star Wars Jeff Goldblum let's yes. put it all on our platform yeah I think I saw that the um, it, you know it started coming out last year or late last year I suppose we've only just got Disney Plus in the UK now but yeah I think it it's still recent enough that I can be amazed along with hopefully a good segment of people I think unlike The Mandalorian, people couldn't really be bothered stealing it, so it kind of slid <laughs> under the radar. <laughs> yeah. So, which is fine, you know. Not not everything is worthy of risking jail time for, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going to watch that at some point. I do like Jeff Goldblum. I like to imagine him as just the most boring person in real life. You know, you meet him and he's just like, yeah, just this normal guy, just, you know. But you think that everything is just uh, it's all an act that his on-screen persona is just all put on? Yeah, could you imagine? I can't. I don't want to. I don't <laughs> want to live in a world where that's true. 
Maybe one day I'll interview him for this podcast and we'll find out for sure. Although we'd probably get his on-screen persona. So yeah. I'm just going to have to follow him around, break into his house, things like that. Be a fly on the wall. Be a brundle fly on the wall. <laughs> <laughs> cool. I'm going to kneel before. It's a film that came out quite some time ago, but I ended up rewatching it at the weekend because of the current situation, funnily enough. The film Contagion. People have been talking about it quite a lot, and what it basically does is it uses, you know, a sort of a cast of thousands type approach, almost like Independence Day, except with far less explosions, to chart the course of a pandemic from outbreak to cure. And it's it's quite interesting because you see the parallels to the real world thing, even though it was a fictionalized extrapolation. You see a lot of things that are actually going on now. They talk about social distancing, washing hands, all that kind of stuff. So it's a really interesting film. It has a kind of an all-star cast, although it's not really about the characters as such. It's more about the situation. You know, there's a bit of a, a plot, a through-line plot with Matt Damon and losing his wife and things like that. But it's like it doesn't focus on the emotion of the situation too heavily. It's more on the facts of the situation. But it is really interesting. I don't know if any of you have seen it. I haven't seen it, but I have heard a fair bit about it recently and people were talking about it. I think it was on TV in the UK recently, which was some people were saying is a bit of a strange choice at the moment, you know, or, but then I think it was probably quite well watched because people are a bit like that, aren't they? The, you know, yeah. if there's something, a crisis going on, people start publishing articles of everything you should watch while you're in quarantine or, you know, all the best disease-related movies and that sort of thing. So yeah. there's been a bit of buzz about it recently. I mean, that's ultimately why I decided to dig it out of my extensive Blu-ray collection and to stick it on. I'd been sort of meaning to rewatch it for a while, but this sort of spurred me on and I enjoyed it as much as such a thing can be enjoyed, I suppose. Is it Steven Soderbergh? Yeah, it's got Gwyneth Paltrow in it. If you don't like Gwyneth Paltrow, she dies in like the first five minutes. <laughs> I think I do remember that from when it came out and that was like a selling point. <laughs> <laughs> Your organically sourced vegetables that you grow in your own garden won't save you now. (laughs) (laughs) It's an amazing little selling point. Gwyneth Paltrow dies in the first five minutes. Although she does appear throughout in, like, camera footage and stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's worth a watch. But if you're looking for any kind of emotional connection to any of the characters, you're not going to get it there. But, yeah, it's interesting for what it is. It's along the lines of, I don't know, something like Crash or whatever. You know, where it's an essay rather than a, mm-hmm. a narrative, I suppose. I mean, it is still a narrative, but it's more essay-driven than character-driven, I guess. So Maybe we'll see if we can dig it out when we're not watching docuseries on various really, streaming platforms. I really want to rewatch All the streaming platforms. Yeah. I think there's so many things that we'll have missed. Oh, there's always something to watch, I suppose. Okay, so let's move on to Rise Against. Natalie, you go first. Some of the people in Tiger King. (laughs) How about something else? Um, Okay, the relaxed wildlife laws (laughs) in the United States. (laughs) And that is it. That is is what I would like to... I hope through watching Tiger King that many people will develop a, a conversation open up some dialogue we're discussing the non-existent rules that currently are in play and since it's like day 
10, 9, 11 of lockdown. Let's rise against that. Yeah, lockdown's not the best. There is no cinema. Yeah, there is no cinema. <laughs> yeah. Although there's some films that are coming out on like streaming and stuff that wouldn't have been before, so that's, you know, kind of okay. I guess. Angus, do you have a rise against? I do. It's kind of split across a few things because I can't decide what to rise against in a concerted effort. One, people who prejudge things online, such as the aforementioned Tiger King. So people who are saying, I won't watch it because it's about people who keep animals. Uh, But then, of course, they don't know anything about it because they haven't seen it. Two, companies who are treating their staff badly during this whole lockdown and you know lots and lots of places are having to close or fire staff or yeah i've seen a list of companies that are kind of in the bad books right now very short notice kind of termination of contracts and oh yeah yeah so one of them is kind of related to just general prejudice on facebook which probably doesn't count for very much doesn't really matter or affect anyone that badly and the other one is a bit more serious because it's you know but we're all kind of trying to get through this together. Cool. So that's your rise against. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go for an entertainment-based one. They're developing a sequel to Hobbs and Shaw. <laughs> I thought the first one was pretty... It's, it's, it's not great. And do we need another one? Do we need another film of Jason Statham and The Rock, you know, doing this kind of dick-measuring dance that they keep doing? Yeah, I would say no. Yeah. I mean... It doesn't work because they are the same person, basically. The, the the characters are the same. Everyone knows that a buddy story needs to have opposites. And they're not opposites, they're the same. They have the same skill set, they have the same snarky outlook on life. It, we don't need another one. Yeah, I'd agree. I only saw the first one fairly recently. Actually on the plane on the way back from our trip. And, yeah, I just thought... It's basically the same joke over and over again. And I don't know how they managed to string that out into however long two-hour movie. And it wasn't funny. It wasn't funny the first time, and it wasn't funny the 20th time or 50th time. There were some okay action sequences, but otherwise the whole thing is kind of held together around the relationship of those guys. And they kind of antagonize each other the whole time, and that's it. They just kind of wind each other up and wind each other up and make fun of each other. And that's it. Yeah. The only interesting thing about it is the fact that The Rock, Jason Statham, and even though he's not in it, Vin Diesel have it written into their contracts that they can't lose a fight. So <laughs> if you watch when they are fighting, you'll see that they throw equal numbers of punches and nobody loses a fight. Something will interrupt it rather than one of them winning. But it's especially apparent when they're fighting Idris Elba at the end, they throw like an equal number of punches. <laughs> if you count it, it's exactly... And, it's kind of pathetic, these action movie tough guys being like, I don't want to appear weak by being beaten up you know, by someone else. Keeping track of that sort of thing is probably more interesting than the actual plot. Well, I ended up reading the article before I saw the film and I was watching it with that in mind, which added <laughs> an extra layer to it for me. <laughs> so, you know, it was operating on two levels rather than just barely one, as <laughs> it would otherwise. And I'm getting a bit sick of the rock shtick as well. You know, this, haha, look how huge he is. You know, that's the joke in every film he's in now. Yes. Wearing a bit. Although he's still getting movies made and people are still paying him a lot of money to do this, so. Yeah. It's getting to the point where he can't play human beings anymore. 
Yeah, I suppose it's a bit like action stars in the 80s that were, that were just over the top and kind of superheroes without capes. Yeah, but at least they lost a fight now and again. Well, he's been doing this for over 15 years. I'm used to now. You've accepted it into your life. No, I did enjoy him as the Tooth Fairy. <laughs> I'll be back when that came out. The Tooth Fairy is an interesting one because it's almost a parody of an action career that he hadn't had at that point. Every other action hero, they get their kind of fallen from grace type film. Arnie gets Jingle All the Way. Hulk Hogan gets the nanny one, Mr. Mr. Nanny. Mr. Nanny, yeah. Stallone has all manner of train wreck in his history and, and so on. Vin Diesel had the pacifier. They always get these kind of fallen from grace. Why is this guy in this type of film type mm-hmm. things? And The Rock did that before he became a huge action star. He might have that reset coming up. Maybe. Yeah, maybe he'll just fall from grace again. It has to wear off at some point. Mm-hmm. Eventually his body will be like, stop doing this to me. He'll throw his back out or something. We shall see. Anyway, mm-hmm. let's get on to our main topic. So, with First Contact Day looming, possibly long gone by the time this podcast is published. Well, I hope not. I'm going to try and do it. We're here to talk about Star Trek Generations. So, normally we start without spoiling it. I realise it's redundant for a film that is this old. But why break the habit of a lifetime? So... Mm-hmm. Angus, do you want to start us off with your opinion without spoiling what happens in the film too much? Well, it had been a long time since I'd seen this. And I think I went to see it at the cinema with my mum when it came out. <laughs> <laughs> and because I was probably eight or nine at that time, I remember thinking that it was, you know, it was a big cinematic experience, uh, sort of, you know, massive sci-fi movie. And watching it again, I mean, I've maybe only seen it once or twice since then. Watching it again recently, I was just struck by how really non-cinematic it was. It didn't <laughs> feel like a big event at all, or that okay, there's you know, a, a, there's a kind of planetary size stakes going on, but uh, yeah, it just didn't feel like it was this, this big kind of earth-shattering uh, or planet-shattering movie that I that I remembered from when I was much younger. And I, yeah, I don't know. I just seem to have different memories of of the film. And, you know, I was thinking, oh, it's got some of the original cast in it. It's like a kind of meld, non mind meld, but uh, a melding of the old generation and the new generation. And kind of. I'd, yeah, well, that's the thing. I'd kind of filled in the blanks in my head of what this film represented or what it was, and. Watching it, watching it again, I realised no, actually, it doesn't do any of those things. It doesn't really, <laughs> doesn't, didn't. I don't know why I remembered it like that. Maybe just because they were all in it at some points, and I was thinking, oh, it's like they all go on a big on a big adventure together, but they don't. <laughs> yeah, there's aspects of it that are kind of cinematic looking. You know, it's clearly higher budget than your average episode, and, and the lighting is weirdly different to the TV show, like distractingly different to the TV show. But it's this weird transition between the TV show and the films, as in the ship that we had for the TV show doesn't quite work on a widescreen and that kind of stuff. It's very weird. And also the director is just someone that directed some episodes of The Next Generation. So it feels very TV as well. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, You're watching it, that's it? Yeah, it feels a lot like a, a television movie. Had you seen it before? No. <laughs> My first experience. That was your first contact. It. Your first contact. There we go. 
yes, I can't compare it to something, you know, from watching it when I was a child and feeling all nostalgic or lovely about it all. I just watched it and the whole time was like, why did they not just get Kiefer Sutherland? <laughs> <laughs> well, instead of Malcolm McDowell? Yeah, that's what she was thinking. But at the time it was filmed, he wouldn't have been the right age or, you know, to play that kind of... Would he not have been in rehab at the time? Probably, yeah. Maybe. Maybe. I, I think Malcolm McDowell's one of the better things about it, actually. I think he, you know, really sinks into that part. I mean, we'll talk about whether the character works or not, but Malcolm McDowell does a decent job. Yeah, I think so, too. Yeah. That was one of the things that I remembered, or, or I thought I remembered as from watching it as a kid, was that the baddie was, you know, he was pretty determined. He, he was kind of getting away with his evil scheme. And so I'd remembered that he was fairly threatening. And then watching it again, I was like, yeah, I suppose. I mean, he's portrayed quite well, and he's probably one of the better things in it. Yeah, for those half a dozen scenes that he's in. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I'm a huge Star Trek fan. But, yeah, this isn't one of the better ones. But I do think it's quite an interesting film in a few ways. And I think it taps into some things that are really interesting that we'll come on to. Maybe it doesn't necessarily do them very well, but it kind of puts things out there that are worth exploring and then doesn't explore them. <laughs> it's a bit weird. Even the writers admit that they, yeah, we dropped the ball on this one, but they put everything into writing the TNG finale, which is way better because they were writing them both kind of at the same time. So okay. when TNG ends, it just kind of finishes as in... You could watch the final episode and expect there to be an eighth season, except there isn't an eighth season. The film's out next summer. That's the way TNG ends, because they were already knew they were transitioning into films at that point. But yeah, as a first outing for this cast in the cinema, I don't think it's a great one. And there are some decisions that are made that are just baffling, really. Well, I think <laughs> some of it has to do with William Shatner and his demands, which we will definitely come on to, because they're hilarious. <laughs> I mean, this is all fresh for me, so I can't wait for the juicy gossip. You can't wait for 20-year-old gossip. (laughs) Yeah! I'm excited. Cool. Without further ado, then, will we just engage emergency spoiler separation? I don't know if I'm ready for this, Jelly. Let's decloak the spoiler bird of prey. (laughs) No, we're decloaking and separating. Let's do one. Right, we're into spoilers now, which is great. So I think the best approach to take with this film in terms of what it does well is the fact that it leads with theme. It doesn't lead with plot or character, because it fails at both of those. (laughs) But it it does lead with theme. And the the sort of first theme they pick out is regret. You get that very early on. You know, it's pretty clear when Kirk's at that christening ceremony for the new Enterprise. He doesn't want to be there, and he's regretting his life choices. And that, are regretting theirs? <laughs> no, the writers, they're fine. They're getting paid. It's fine. As is Shatner and the other two. Again, they don't do anything with it where Kirk is concerned. They kind of do it in the Nexus later on, where he outlines the fact that if he might regret not being on the bridge of a starship, but they don't do anything with it, which is really weird. What do you think of like Kirk in that opening scene, the way he kind of stands around? Is he regretting it or is he... What is, I don't really... I, understand because he kind of feeling like he, he wants to take control but he feels like he can't step on the other guy's toes yeah it's that oh, I, I know exactly how to solve this situation but i have to let this guy learn even though it's probably going to kill us it's weird because it seems as if presumably through his whole career and every time he's been on screen and beat impossible odds and won 
he would just have taken the situation by the scruff of the neck. And, it, and, and in this, what struck me was that he's clearly kind of holding back, but you'd think, nah, wouldn't he just really just play the hero and kind of step forward and solve everything or kind of get everyone whipped into shape and doing what needed to be done? Well, there's this almost this thing in Star Trek where... there's It's not almost... There is this thing in Star Trek where anyone who's not our captain on our ship is incompetent, and that includes Starfleet. So you see other captains, and they're all mental, and the, the admirals don't know what they're talking about. Only Kirk or Picard or whatever captain you're following at that moment knows the score. You know, the, the only competent one. Yeah, the only people that know what they're doing. And there's only seven people on this ship that know what they're doing as well. Hmm. And Harriman, he's clearly pretty new, which is weird that he gets put in command of the Enterprise after not earning it, I guess. And it's because he was in speed, that's why. It's because he was in speed, yeah, or whatever that thing he was in. Ferris uh, Bueller. Ferris Bueller, yeah. Or that's all I was saying he was in. Yeah. I just see the guy from speed. <laughs> yeah, he's quite ineffectual in speed like, as well. So <laughs> He was kind of playing the same character, wasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> but I think, I think Harriman's okay, actually. I mean, he plays as this kind of wet behind the ears captain, but he tries to maintain his calm during the situation. I mean, the, the fact is that he's only supposed to be going for a quick jaunt to play for the cameras, and then suddenly they get launched in this emergency situation, so obviously he wasn't prepared for that. Oh, I wondered about that. It was a bit like, what are they doing? Just, like, joyriding, and then suddenly adventure mm-hmm. happens. Also, they're in the solar system, and they're the only ship in range when there's a distress call. But... <laughs> <laughs> very strange like you said that he would be put in charge and just have absolutely well and kind of crumble when it comes to the, the pressure point moments yeah although he does show promise like for example when his plans fail and then he just right okay I've got to bite the bullet here it's like Captain Kirk please help you know it's making use of the resources around him and then it's hilarious how quickly Kirk jumps into action he's like right here's what we'll do immediately yeah, I suppose he's got that kind of presence looming over him the whole time. You can yeah, see him yeah. kind of glancing over. They kind of glance at each other from time to time where he's thinking, oh, I've got this legend watching me. And then Kirk's a bit like, well, I should step in, but I don't want to because it's his rodeo. Yeah. But there is a sense that Kirk regrets going into retirement. I mean, he has to do it sometime. He's not getting any younger. But as a, at the end of Star Trek Six, there was a sense that he still had some adventuring left in the tank. And here he is just here retired, peering, essentially because he's got nothing better to do to christen this new ship with Scotty and Chekhov, who are standing in for Spock and McCoy, and you can tell in their dialogue. <laughs> yeah, some like notable absences. <laughs> Chekhov has the line where he's like, you and you, you just became nurses. You can hear McCoy say that. It's just a find and replace they did in the script on those two <laughs> characters, largely. <laughs> But I like that sequence. I think it's an interesting thing about passing the torch isn't always easy. You know, it's not always going to be necessarily the thing you feel is the right thing to do because I guess Kirk leaves this. Well, he doesn't leave this experience at all. He kind of dies or yeah, vanishes. A few good gags about him kind of getting on or, you know, feeling like he's in the wrong place or he should be in charge or just some of that dialogue, some of the interplay between the old crew. Yeah. And I mean, it's a waste of a sequence in a way because it's designed to set up the villain for one thing, where you first see him. Yeah. You don't get a sense of his motivation there, but you see how his motivation started. Um, I don't even remember seeing anything like that. He had a big scar on his face. He was kind of 
shouting about wanting to go back. <laughs> yeah, but then you're like, yeah, well, maybe, exactly. It's the classic American troops have swooped in to save somebody, but do they actually know that they're saving anybody or interfering? Well, I think that... they have a pretty good idea when they're on a ship that's about to blow up. <laughs> and the other one did blow up. Yeah, but <laughs> the other one. teleporting somewhere else. Mm. Well, I mean, they were, sort of, but... Well, they had no way of knowing that at that point. Exactly, interfering. Well, it saved 47 lives, so it's less than a third of the crew of that ship that they managed to save. But presumably the other two-thirds are quite happy because they're in the Nexus and can do whatever they want. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't know that. I mean, the Nexus is a weirdly underdeveloped thing that we will definitely get onto. So the regret thing, it's definitely in there for Kirk, and he talks about it in his conversation with Picard later on. How he kind of regrets standing down because he hasn't made a difference since he stood down. And and that's all pretty good. But as an isolated moment of realisation for a character, but it doesn't feed into anything that the film is trying to tell you. Because it's not really trying to tell you anything. Mm. To me, it just seems more like he's kind of, like you say, passing the torch. But then, um, I don't know, possibly just disappointed in his own ageing out of his profession. Yeah. But why is it regret? Well, he does talk about... This is much later in the film, but he talks to Picard. And I was like, I don't even think he looks that old. Like, I'm so used to seeing so many old, old people (laughs) nowadays that I was like, what is he talking about? Why is he acting like everything's over? Was he forced to quit? Was he forced to retire? No, he chose to, but then later regretted the decision, it seems. Mm. Is any of that established, though, in the opening sequence. I mean, other than the fact that he just seems a bit fed up. Not really. Because it's the old guys coming in, it just feels as if they're over the hill. They're kind of These young whippersnappers. Well, yeah, you just kind of, or you kind of interpret it as in, like I say, they've aged out of being in this kind of active role, and now they're watching the next generation, ironically, taking over, and not doing very well. (laughs) Making a hash of it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day... They weren't going to interact at all, though, right? Wasn't it Kirk that was all, like... Oh. He means the literal next generation, as in Kirk is on the next Enterprise with a different captain on it. Ah, okay. Yeah. We'll get to the actual next generation. That's okay. I don't feel qualified to even be on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just throwing it out there. Yeah, so you get a sense in the opening sequence that Kirk is regretting his choice because even Shatner shows it in his performance as soon as he is able to help you know as soon as he has permission to help he's you know he's more alive than he has been up to that point he gets to run down to the deflector control room and and push some buttons which is very next generation rather than original series he's enjoying himself he has purpose again yeah and like what does he say something like he's like I've got to get down there and switch out the RAM module (laughs) There's a lot of techno babble, which you didn't really get in the original series. Uh, I was wondering about the kind of fix that he puts in and how he has to go down. You know, you'd think that wherever he goes, there's got to be some other member of the crew that could go in and or is closer to it and is able to just kind of switch out these. Yeah. I don't know what they were. <laughs> what no, no, most most of the crew don't arrive till Tuesday, so well, there was no yeah. out. <laughs> and remember, there's only like six people on a ship that can do anything, so. 
<laughs> I mean, in this case, it's a little more literal, I suppose, than anything else. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's good that they've got a sense of humour about that, you know? If that was something that they were mocked on in previous times, making that like a running joke for that. Yeah. yeah, and then Kirk, quote unquote, dies in that scene, except he doesn't, because it just enables him to appear in the the 24th century later on. So in that sense, it's a bit of a waste because that whole sequence could have been about something. Instead, it is just table setting for the rest of the film. It was pretty shocking, though, because I was a bit like, what? (laughs) How does this go down in terms of the overall fandom and canon that Kirk dies twice? Well, it doesn't really die, but is this the actual end of him? Yeah, William Shatner never appears as Kirk again, sort of. So he dies for all intents and purposes in the opening. Yeah. And then... He dies. Kind of an ignominious sort of fall from a catwalk later on. Mm. What does that, I mean, how do you feel about the way he goes out from the whole, you know, the whole of everything, everything he's been through, everything he's survived, and this is the way that he bows out? It's really weird because this film could have been the one where, oh my God, this is where Kirk dies instead of it's the film where it's like, oh yeah, and Kirk dies. It's like on a list of things that happened in the film. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's a really weird sort of outing for him, but. I don't know, I I do remember going to see it with my dad when I was younger. And one of the first things I remember him saying, I don't know why I even remember this, it was so long ago, but I remember him saying, coming out of the film, he was like, oh, but he'll still be in the ribbon, won't he? And I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm like six. (laughs) 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 See, that would have been a clever way to do it, you know, to have ended it with that limbo. Maybe everyone would have always been like, it's like Schrodinger's cat. Is he alive? Isn't he alive? Like, they would never know. It would have given... To give inception opportunity. to him. Yeah, it would have given opportunity to bring him back in the future. Well, it seems like for such a mega character, you know, that's held together such a popular franchise, when I was watching it, I think I was so underwhelmed by that that I don't think I'd actually process that that would have been his ending. You yeah. know, I think I think there's yeah, it's like is that it? Is that it for Kirk? Yeah. But I didn't even think that. Yeah, I, think, I was just like, eh. I don't think I felt the gravity of it when I saw it when I was younger. Other than thinking it felt like he was the main character, but I didn't think about it in the context of everything that he'd been in. You know, from all the way from yeah. the original series and the movies and everything. But then watching it now and, and trying to put it into context like that, I just think, how does this feel? In grand terms. Mm. I can't speak for the entire fandom, and nor should I try. But Please do, please do. <laughs> but certainly most people I've come across, they're not bothered about it. It's just kind of accepted as, yeah, that wasn't the best. I don't know, maybe it's because it happened so long ago. Maybe at the time there was a lot of vitriol aimed at the film, but there was no internet to make it known. So yeah, I suppose if, you, if yeah. the same sort of thing had happened today, would people just be like, what, that's it? He comes back. He dies and then disappears for a long time, comes back, rides a horse, and then dies again. <laughs> yeah. Shatner does play Kirk twice more that I'm aware of, one of which is an advert. Where <laughs> they use a scene from Star Trek Six and they sort of CGI his modern face onto his own face. What was the advert for? <laughs> I can't remember. I think it was like for flights or something like that. <laughs> I'll, I'll find it and it'll be in the show notes and I'll send it on to you. But it's... <laughs> It's it's really bad. And the other time is in a video game called Star Trek Legacy, where he voices Kirk, which is really funny because it's set across different eras, and it's old, 80-year-old Shatner or whatever, voicing original series-era Kirk. So this old, tired-sounding voice supposed to be Kirk in his prime. It's 
really weird. <laughs> yeah, this is essentially it for Shatner as Kirk. You never see him play that role again other than those two things I mentioned, which are, you know, probably whether or not canon for one thing. But um, there was always talk of bringing him back when Enterprise was on. They were going to do an episode where they somehow put him in. And there was a series of novels that William Shatner wrote and I use wrote in inverted commas. It's more like he was kind of in the room while other people were writing them, um, where Kirk gets resurrected in the 24th century and essentially becomes the centre of the universe. So, you know, it's the Shatner's ego-verse, I guess. It's very strange. They're good books, actually. I mean, they're a good read, but it's, when you read it through the lens of, my God, this guy is up himself, it's quite funny. So maybe I shouldn't take his character's death in this as such a momentous moment or what I felt like it should have been a momentous moment, but then just was kind of, and it happens in this movie. I think that Shatner will play this character one more time. I've got a feeling it's going to happen at some point. Yeah? Yeah. And it wouldn't be for an advert for flights or whatever it was. <laughs> it just seems like something that will eventually happen. I suppose it's it probably more likely nowadays that nostalgia and people just kind of selling that experience you know that's what they really want to kind of call back to stuff that people remember from however long ago they'll get anyone out of retirement get people back in the costume for one more go around yeah i mean it's essential what picard is right no don't say that because i'm really enjoying picard i don't think your reaction to seeing Patrick Stewart in this film was like, oh, he was young, even though when we watched it, or maybe when we were watching mm. it when we were younger, you'd think he is an old man at the time. Yeah. No, I didn't. <laughs> and now you watch it and you're like, wow, he was like, he was 50 once. I felt, I felt really bad because I was a bit like, oh no, when I was aware of him when I was younger, I remember just being like, oh, that old guy. <laughs> but now, now that I've seen, I don't, this is so... I don't. I don't mean this in any rude way, Patrick Stewart. Now that I've seen him and he's older he's and he's realistic. older, I then saw him and I was like, "Holy shit!" Like he actually doesn't look that old in that thing. But that's more about how much older I am <laughs> than anything else. <laughs> his, his age is actually starting to catch up with him. Got, there was a point where it seemed like he would just be this age forever, visibly, but he's looking older now. Mm-hmm. But we happen. all are. Yeah. <laughs> what are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's one of the themes in this film as well, about growing older. Kirk is struggling with the fact that he's getting older. Picard is starting to deal with the fact that he's getting older because of the thing that happens to him in this film. And Kirk directly asks him about whether he's close to retirement, which is a wonder if Kirk's like, you're looking a bit old. Are you <laughs> thinking about like jacking it in? Or you got another couple of years left in you? And that's actually the strongest moment in the film for me is that advice that Kirk gives him. You know, they don't let them promote you, don't let them transfer you, don't let them do anything that takes you off the bridge of that ship. And he ignores it. And what is the age difference between them? I'm not sure. Patrick Stewart's older by like two and a half years. No, he is not. <laughs> Google just, it. Did you just come out with that with enough confidence to? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought maybe Craig would be like, what? <laughs> well, maybe Google it. Am I right? Uh, Shatner's in his eighties and Patrick Stewart's in his seventies. 
<laughs> yeah, so what are their ages? So when they were both riding around on horses, I was... I've, I kind of... Oh, that scene was incredible. I kind of oscillated between at different stages in the film thinking, oh, they're actually, you know, Patrick Stewart looks quite young. And then later on when they were together, I was like, oh, they're both old. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the funniest thing is, uh, Patrick Stewart is playing Picard as 12 years older than his actual age. In the Picard show, he's like 90-something. What? (laughs) Whoa, he is spry. (laughs) Well, if you think about it, better healthcare in the future. He'll live longer, so... Yeah, life expectancy is up to 150. Yeah, so that's why he could play older than he actually was. Yeah, but I think even in that scene, Kirk's supposed to be a bit older. I mean, they're at different stages in their career, in effect, because Kirk is at the retirement stage and Picard isn't. He's still, you know, rattling around as a captain, doing his thing. Hmm. But that advice that Kirk gives him is, is great because that is a passing of the torch moment. That's the, yeah, you, know, you have to stay on the Enterprise because that was where I did my best work. And it, it's really good. And then it's weird that Picard just completely ignores it. He lets them promote him. He lets them transfer him. And then he retires in the Picard show. But it's funny you mentioned the horses bit. So this is the, the bit I was talking about with Shatner's demands. He wanted to have a scene in the film where he gets to ride a horse and they were going to be his horses on his property, and they were going to pay him like rent so that they could film on his property. What? And they agreed. Why? <laughs> because Shatner's a horse guy. He breeds like prize-winning horses. He owns his own ranch. It's like a whole thing that he does. He's apparently very, very good at it, and he just wanted this in this film, so it happened. That was his act. Yeah, it was his act. That guy knows how to chop wood. He was yeah, yeah, he was chopping wood for quite some time. <laughs> he knows how to do it. Does Patrick Stewart know how to ride a horse? Yeah, Picard rode horses on Next Generation as well. Okay. It just wasn't really a Kirk thing. It's more of a Shatner thing. Well, it's because it's an in-space thing, so what the hell are they doing on a horse? Because, I don't know, Kirk likes horses, and Picard <laughs> likes horses. <gasps> anyway, I laughed out loud. So, I mean, I had a great time. <laughs> well, that's Shatner's pride and joy. Is it was... that. They'd have to work out that he would end up there in the Nexus <laughs> so that they could be on his ranch, or were they going to somehow shoehorn in his ranch in some other way? I, I don't know at what stage this demand came in, but I'm guessing Kirk read this... Not Kirk, Shatner. Yeah, they're interchangeable at this point. <laughs> I'm guessing Shatner read the script and being like, see, instead of this fantasy that Kirk's living in, how about we do it on my ranch? My house. Did you pay me for it? <laughs> <laughs> and then someone at Paramount was like, sure. <laughs> and then it happened. Because this whole backstory that they came up with for Kirk, it was never mentioned before or since. This Antonia person is never seen before this point. This whole house that he supposedly had nine years ago, which would place it, I don't know, sometime... It's, I don't know when it actually places it. Some other people might know better than me, but it's nonsense. Like this whole conflict that Kirk had about going back to Starfleet nine years ago. It's like, when did he have that conflict? So does that not make it quite egregious in terms of canon then that they just say, well, this is what happened now? Kind of, but people just seem to ignore it. <laughs> so it's, it's <laughs> oh man, they, they, they must be so pleased that they're not around in the era of The Last Jedi and Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> Yeah. 
I don't know, I think it's just kind of accepted that this is a problematic film and we just move on with our lives and just accept it. You'd be getting flamed so hard. <laughs> if they made it now, sure. But they would never make something like this now. No. It's not modern in any sense, which, fine. I think the Star Trek films, the good and bad ones, have their own sense of identity. You know, there's nothing quite like them. I mean, there's nothing quite like this. Yeah, you can say that again. <laughs> <laughs> so another theme is loss and death. Picard gets news that his brother and nephew have burned to death in a fire at the vineyard that he later lives on. I don't mean to laugh, but the way he delivers that oh, news gosh. I found very... Yeah, you did comment on it. I found it quite difficult. Yeah? <laughs> yeah, just because of the, just the, the phrasing and everything, the way he kind of, I don't know... He's trying to be matter-of-fact He was be, trying to be frank about it, yeah, but yeah, yeah. I, don't know, I, just thought that I can't imagine someone sort of describing their own family dying like that. Well, I mean, it's very Picard. He doesn't open up to people easily, and I think it comes across from that scene where he just struggles to say the words because it means being vulnerable in front of someone. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is difficult for him. And I think Patrick Stewart plays that really well. But the problem is the film does absolutely nothing with it. It comes out of nowhere, goes nowhere, and doesn't really inform Picard's character much at all, other than the fact that he's kind of upset for a while. Yeah, he kind of, the way they deal with it, like he gets the news, you know something bad has happened, and then you just have that feeling for a while. Every interaction he has, you're just like, okay, He's dealing with something, he's dealing with something, and you kind of, you know, you guess at what it must be, something, someone close to him has died, and then he just comes out with it. And I agree that, you know, he's obviously an amazing actor, so he kind of deals with it. He portrays it really well, but I just think that the way that that is all handled is a bit strange. Again, I think watching it when I was younger, I didn't really think about it much because you're just you're letting everything kind of wash over you. But then watching it a bit more critically, it was a bit like, yeah, it's kind of a strange... You know, all this other stuff is happening and he just kind of removes himself, which I understand why he would do that and why a a character would behave in that way. But I think just the way it's kind of told on screen is a bit strange. Yeah, it's because it's not what the film's about, when it almost should be, especially because his fantasy is having a family and a Victorian Christmas for some reason. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I thought you were going to tell us that the scene with the nephew and everything had been written in because he wanted to explore his emotional range or something like that because I felt it very odd that he very quickly and very easily just cries. Yeah, well, I don't know what the genesis of this whole... I can't even call it a subplot. It's not even that. It's just dialogue that goes nowhere. It's not really the fantasy I would have expected Picard to end up in because he's always... I mean, I don't know how much of TNG you've actually seen, but he's very interested in, like, archaeology and stuff. So you'd think... He'd be sort of knee deep in some excavation on a, on a remote planet, or I don't know, in, in some kind of historical reenactment or whatever. But I suppose family is on his mind, which makes sense in that respect. But I don't know why he's picturing that family. Yeah. It was very strange. <laughs> it was not. Again, I'm going to keep going back to watching it as a child, but I just remember that being the boring bit because you're like, oh, <laughs> there aren't lasers or they're not spaceships. Why is he next to a Christmas tree? And it just reminds me of there's a, a version of A Christmas Carol where he plays Scrooge. And it just makes me think that it, you're almost like flipped into this weird Dickensian world yeah. for a bit while he's there. And yeah, it's just, just very, kind of very kind of distracting. Yeah, I mean, it would have been fine if it told you something about him. So it's the idea of he's aware of his mortality. He's thinking about the fact that there will be no one to succeed him in the family. So he's the last in his family line and does he have a responsibility to carry that on does he not 
does he resolve this by the end of the film? No, he doesn't. Does he ever display any of that kind of a tendency towards those feelings in any of the TV show? Not really, no. There is an episode called Family, which appears straight after the Borg two-parter where he becomes a Borg, where he goes and spends the time on his vin- or on his family's vineyard with his brother. And, you know, he chats to his nephew, and his nephew's a lot like him, as in wants to join Starfleet and wants to explore and wants to follow in his footsteps, whereas his brother is very set in his ways and very much the, no, I'm living on this land, I never want to leave Earth, that kind of thing. So Picard is essentially the black sheep of his own family because because hmm. he wanted to get away and it does talk about it caused a bit of a stir. I think he talks about it in this film. It caused a bit of a stir when he left. I always thought of him as quite a rational character or a very rational character and then watching this again and and kind of letting that wash over me in that scene, his desire to see the family line continue. It jarred with me a bit, but then I, not being able to really kind of back that up with whether or not everything else that we know about his character has, or has been built about his character. I didn't know whether or not that was kind of staying true to something that had been established previously, but to me it just felt a bit like it was coming Where out of the blue. Where did this come from? Yeah, it was just coming mm-hmm. out of nowhere for the sake of this movie. Yeah, well, I mean, he doesn't resolve anything. He doesn't make any decisions about what he's going to do with his life after this. At the end of the film, he gets beamed up to another ship and it's back to work. <laughs> Which yeah, is a choice, I suppose, but... <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> oh, well. I'm, you know, I'm in my 80s. I've got plenty of time to settle down and start a family, you know. <laughs> that kind of stuff, but there's a few ways it could have gone. There could have been the decision that, okay, what's happened has happened, and my life choices are my life choices, and I should just continue on as I have been because that is a choice I've made, whatever, it's fine. Or comes to the realisation that his crew are his family. Yeah, that's what which, I was thinking. Yeah, you know, Which is also not something that he does. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it should have been, yeah, like there's the time for kind of establishing myself as a family man has passed, but I know that I'm amazing at what I do, and I do have this kind of proxy family being the crew, so you should just kind of taken that on board, but it wasn't... Maybe it's time to do that DNA test to find out if Wesley Crusher is actually my son, as the fans think he is. That's also a, a possibility, but there's also the fact that he gets told you can leave the Nexus and go back to any time that you want to. It's like, great! I want to go back to before my family burned to death and saved me. <laughs> nah, I'll just go back immediately before I... No, I'm just going to go back to like 10 minutes before the sun explodes and wing it. <laughs> it's really odd because there's innumerable times that you could have chosen throughout the film to return to and, and stop something. Let's go to the point where Soren is first beamed aboard and arrest him. I was very surprised by many of those things. Yeah, it's... Why would you choose that, other than the fact that the budget had allowed for that sequence and nothing else? <laughs> yeah, we've already shot there. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And also, there's no real stakes to that, because you know that if he fails, he'll just get sucked back into the Nexus and he can just try again. Well, yeah, I did wonder that as well. He wouldn't even be able to just do it over and over again if he kept failing. Yeah. <laughs> so, that's it's fine. Yeah, there's there's no stakes there whatsoever. There's also the thing about you can always ask the question, did he ever get out of the Nexus? Or is the Nexus just giving him what he wants or what he thinks he wants at that time? No, because what he wants is Victorian Tea Party. Yeah, That's but what then he, de- that but then he decided, I want to be out of the Nexus and stopping this star from exploding. 
God. It is like the butterfly effect. If they ever wanted to do a massive reboot from this point, they could easily just be like, oh, yeah, everything after this point is a weird Nexus fantasy for Picard. <laughs> so... It was all a dream. It was all a dream, yeah, it could be. You just don't know. There's a version of Guinan in there that kind of leads him to things. And again, they they set up this whole thing about once you're in the Nexus, you won't want to leave. You'll be super tempted by it because you can have anything you want. And then he's in there like two minutes and he's like, nah, I want out of here. The two characters who you know anything about who are in there both decide to leave. Yeah, without much cajoling at all, you know. I mean, it might have been more interesting if he found Kirk after he'd been in there for, from his perspective, a while and was loving life and he has to convince him rather than, yeah, I've been here like two minutes, it's fine. I don't really know where I am or what I'm doing, so yeah, I'll leave. Is there any point in asking you anything about how any of it works in terms of, (laughs) he's in it, he's standing next to a Victorian Christmas tree and then he decides he needs to go and find the one man who'll be able to help him who he knows is in there. So what does he just kind of thinks, I want to go and find him, and he finds him. Well, it's the Guinan echo that points him in that direction. Right. Okay. Yeah, but he's like, I need help. And then he's like, Guinan, you help. And he's, and she's like, no, I can't. I'm not real. I'm a figment of your imagination or whatever you can. <laughs> but this guy, he just got here as well, kind of, but 80 years ago. So <sighs> off you go. <laughs> Yeah, let's, let's have a better plan than let's just leave 10 minutes before the sun blew up. I used to think when I watched films like this and those sorts of sequences didn't make sense to me as a kid. I was always like, well, there's something I'm not getting here. <laughs> I obviously have to be older or wiser to be able to understand this, but I've realised kind of in the last couple of years that when I watch some of these films again, I'm like, no, they're just bad. Yeah. Like, <laughs> there's, nothing there's, to there's nothing to get really, or yeah. it's just badly written or doesn't really make sense. Yeah. There's no... There's nothing kind of hidden that I have been <laughs> banging my head against all these years. It's like, <laughs> actually, no, no, it just it just doesn't make sense. It is just a wee bit crap. Well, I mean, the writers themselves, they point out that they dropped the ball in this, as I said before, and it wasn't their best work. Their best work went into the TNG finale. But they've also talked about the fact that, you may not have seen this, but there's a classic episode of Next Generation called Yesterday's Enterprise. And in that episode, the Enterprise C gets pulled through time into the, well, what is to them the present day. And it turns out that when they left their own time, it creates a darker timeline where they're at war with the Klingons because in that moment, the Enterprise C went to protect the Klingons from a Romulan attack and was destroyed. So the Klingons saw that as being a really honourable act and it led to them forging a peace treaty. So they kind of said, I wish we hadn't done that episode then because we could have essentially done it in this film where you had Kirk's Enterprise come into the future and interact with Picard and crew. So you would add the whole crew, in effect. Mm. I'm kind of thinking, I wouldn't have really cared about doing this again. It would have went down in history as, oh yeah, it's just like yesterday's Enterprise, but who cares because it was great. In terms of how the films fit in amongst the TV series, it must be very difficult to have written a whole TV series and then decide to, you know, we're going to make a movie out of this as well. But what's the justification for having a film other than just we're going to have a theatrical release, we're going to make some more money out of this? Is there any kind of creative reason why they insert the films in where they do? No, well, I mean, they brought back Star Trek as a film series in the 70s after Star Wars came out, because it's like, hey, we have this property that's got star in the title, let's make this. And the motion picture is famously terrible. 
But the films get better after that, or they alternate between getting better and worse. The odd-numbered rule for Star Trek, as in the, the odd-numbered films are crap, and yeah. the even-numbered films are good. And I don't think that's true in all cases, but it largely works. Whereas in the reboot franchise, it's the other way around. <laughs> you know, the first one's good, and the second one's crap, and so on. We've talked about the second one a lot. But was it just because the next generation show was coming to an end that they were then kind of launching into films? Yeah, it was a phenomenon. I mean, it was crazy popular. And, you know, it spawned a spin-off, which was already on the air at this point. Deep Space Nine was two seasons in at this point. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they ultimately decided this thing is really popular. Let's turn it into a film franchise once the series ends. Right. And then the original cast, they're getting a little bit too expensive and a little bit too old, so let's not make films with them anymore. These guys are going to be way cheaper, so let's make films out of them. And then they only do four of them because there's kind of diminishing returns. I mean, I don't know how well this one did, I don't remember, but First Contact was hugely popular and it was hugely well-liked. Insurrection was not, and neither was Nemesis. So the next generation didn't prove viable for a film series as such, but... I think part of the reason for that is because TNG is much more of an ensemble than the original series was. The original series had three main characters. It was Kirk, Spock and McCoy and everyone else just kind of floated around and didn't really do much. Mm-hmm. Or in intermittent episodes, they would do more than some others. But if you look at the original series films, most of this, like Sulu or Scotty or whoever, they don't really do that much in those films because they're not the leads. The other three. So the good films understand that and they kept the focus on that. Whereas in Next Generation, you don't have that core because they had a, a reasonably large cast that all kind of got enough attention. I mean, most of the films tend... In fact, all the films do focus on Picard and Data to a massive extent, which means yeah. that Crusher has nothing to do. You know, she just reads her tricorder and tells, <laughs> tells them... You know, tells them what's on the Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, Worf does very little other than tell you what the shield percentage is and, <laughs> you know, or get laughed at. I mean, he is the butt of the joke, even in this film as well. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's harder in that respect because it's like, where is your focus? And I guess they decided that Picard and Data were your focus because you know, Patrick Stewart's the guy that you're paying the most, so you might as well make the films about him. Well, I don't think this film is about Picard particularly. What is it about? Who is it about, yeah. <laughs> it's not about anybody. Like, that's one of my real questions. It's like, who is it about? What is it about? I mean, things happen to people. And you can see the connection between Picard and Data in this film in the sense that they are both struggling to process their feelings. Well, because one of them's a robot. Well, yeah, I mean, Picard has been accused of being somewhat robotic in his time as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> But that's that's the only connection. I mean, it doesn't draw that connection terribly. No. I have to be honest, the whole movie felt like a really big Maha episode of a TV show. I mean, it is. That's essentially what it is. If that, Yeah, if it was like season six, episode nine or whatever, you'd be like, yeah, whatever. A couple of people on an away team are going to explore a, a deserted ship or space station or observatory or something. And then a couple of people are going to beam to a planet and do a couple of things here and there. It's not, nothing's going to be very... Yeah. Things would be very big or, you know... They probably wouldn't have destroyed the Enterprise if it was a TV episode, but... Mm. And that's part of the loss as well, the Enterprise, which is ostensibly a character in itself, and that's unceremoniously dispatched as well. You know, it's destroyed by a past-it bird of prey, which is just not 
paying any respect to that ship's legacy. It was all just a bit strange. But again, presumably that's not a massive irritant for the fan base because it was from a different time. Yeah, no one seemed that bothered, I guess. I mean, maybe people weren't as connected to the Enterprise D as they were the original one, but I wasn't alive at the time. But in Star Trek Three, they destroy the original Enterprise. That's a death that happens in that film, and it's given mm-hmm. the the gravity that it deserves. And it's a really powerful moment. And people at the time, according to my uncle and my dad, were like, holy crap, they went and did that. I mean, that's the film where Spock gets resurrected. And because you've suffered that loss, you know, that profound loss, it's that ship that you've watched for, watched and loved throughout the original series and the, you know, the previous films. And it lets you hand wave the fact that, oh yeah, someone's been brought back from the dead. <laughs> because there was a penance to it, you know, there was a cost and mm-hmm. and they paid that cost. And here it's just, oh yeah, and the Enterprise D blows up because we need a more film-friendly ship for the next one. Was that the only reason? It wasn't just because we need... Yeah, it's just it's awkward to kind of It's awkward to shoot for, for widescreen. That was what it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really bizarre. But I think the actual sequence with the Enterprise D is destroyed. It's actually quite good. It's quite energetic. I mean, it's full of techno babble. You know, none of it means anything. But the sequence of the saucer crashing on the planet is quite nice. Highlights the need for seatbelts. Yeah, no seatbelts whatsoever. Windows that smash <laughs> upon the slightest impact. Oh, yeah. God, we talked about that too. <laughs> like, Natalie was appalled. Oh, I was so appalled. Like, why even bother? Signal glazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can feel a draft coming in. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it impacts a rock on a planet, but can somehow take a blast from a torpedo. <laughs> it doesn't make a lot of sense, but it's a cool-looking sequence. And then they do a, a riff on that in Star Trek Beyond as well. Mm-hmm. It's kind of similar. I do remember being very impressed by that as a child, just because it was... Action. I suppose you can kind of see through the older effects and stuff now and some of it is a bit more kind of ragged around the edges but it is what it is I quite like the shot of the big trench that it digs Well I think the effects largely hold up because it's all models mm-hmm. Obviously CGI is sometimes quite obvious but when it's a model it's like no it looks like they actually blew something up because they actually did blow something up Fair enough They, 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 actually, they actually crashed a model into A very small forest uh, Yeah, a mock-up of a forest It's yeah, it's, it's quite impressive visually. I mean, the whole scene is like, yeah, let's fire an ionic pulse or whatever it is and force the Klingons to cloak. And then, yeah, like, what, what are you doing? But it's, it's fine. We'll just say it really loudly and run around and <laughs> no one will notice how, how much nonsense we're spouting. They'll have a two-second window. Yeah. Better make it work. <laughs> and I think it's hilarious that Worf has a seat in this film. He never had a seat in The Next Generation. It just looks really stupid. He just looks really small at the back of the bridge, just sitting down. <laughs> <laughs> Strange choices all around. And Data's kind of annoying in that scene because he's quite chuffed at what's going on. He's <laughs> over and he's like, yes. <laughs> but there's a hammy extra in the back that kind of imitates oh, him. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we clocked him too. <laughs> that was great. He was like stealing the thunder. Everyone else was kind of shocked. Yeah, and, was- uh, and then he's like cheesing away in the back. Apparently they didn't catch that till editing, and by that time it's like too late to do it again. (laughs) (laughs) Got away with it this time. And that extra never worked in Hollywood again. (laughs) I think Jonathan Frake's delivery of the word fire in that moment is perfect. Yeah. 
Yeah. Said with gusto. Yeah, I mean, Jonathan Frakes is usually pretty great in these things, and it's upsetting that he doesn't usually get a lot to do. Like, Just like, stepping over chairs. Yeah, well, he doesn't even do that in this film. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't. Yeah, he doesn't do anything. But I really wanted to see the conversation he has with Picard when he get he comes back. It's like, what the hell did you do to my ship? So I let Troy drive. It's like, oh, okay. That's what happened. Yeah, that, that does seem strange. <laughs> it was all this thing about she'd never taken the helm in the whole seven seasons of Next Generation. People were like, oh, she gets to take the helm in this one. And it's like, as if that's a good thing. I mean, the first thing she does is turns all the big guns away from the enemy. I'm over here right now. The onboard counsellor. Who's that again? Oh, the... Yeah. What's it? Yeah, so what was her deal? She just had no business driving. When, she, when does she drive? Just was that so? Was that a deliberate thing that they were like, right, well, let's give her a shot, or was it just kind of a? I get the impression that it was. I don't really know, but I think it's one of those things that people mentioned. Is she ever going to get the chance to take the helm or whatever? Why should everyone get a shot? Some people are qualified and some aren't. Because all she does otherwise is usually state the obvious. <laughs> yeah, alien on the view screen, and she's like, he's angry. <laughs> I sense he's angry. <laughs> I sense hostility, Captain. It's like, well, so do I. <laughs> That's basically what she does. She is used better when she appears in Picard, though. And she does have some standout episodes here and there. It's just she isn't ter- used terribly well in any of the films. Mm. Much as most of the cast, really. Yeah. yeah. So what about Data, then? I'm finding it difficult to differentiate from the episodes that I'd seen that I can I can't really remember much. I did used to watch it when it was on TV, but I can't remember a whole lot of it. I probably remember the films better, but he wasn't always this annoying, was he? It depends what episode. Sometimes he is quite irritating, but he's kind of endearingly irritating when he's supposed to be irritating. But after this, does he retain the emotion chip? Yes and no. So when you get to first contact, he can turn it off and on. Right. Despite the fact that at the end of this film he can't turn it off and on, he's stuck with it. And then in Insurrection, he gets to leave it behind. And then Nemesis, it's not even mentioned. So this does kind of begin a bit of an arc for him, but it doesn't really go anywhere. Yeah, it's just him getting used to emotion. It's just played for laughs. It it doesn't really go anywhere. And I guess there's that whole he gets to experience how much of a coward he can be when Jordy's kidnapped and that's his best friend and he feels responsible for it. But Picard yeah, just tells right. him to suck it up and get on with it. So, <laughs> <laughs> just do your job. It's like, listen, my brother and nephew burned to death like 12 hours ago and I'm still here. So <laughs> if I'm working, you're working. <laughs> yeah, he is very annoying in this film, though. Like, None of his jokes are that funny. I remember thinking they were hilarious when I was younger. But <laughs> I liked him as a character when I was younger. Then again, just I've watching it. Data, but yeah. Watching it now, I'm just thinking, yeah, I'm just like, ah, oh, I can see why if anyone maybe was watching this for the first time, like you did, Natalie, you just think he's just, ah. Oh. It was just, I don't know, I guess you can see why they were trying to experiment with that. You know, you have like this rogue, unpredictable character jeopardizing several scenarios, but. It was very annoying. It seems like his programming would take over, though. You know, if he's got a job to do, even if he's experiencing emotions, he's still programmed to mm. carry out a mission. So well, the, the emotion chip was overloading his program. Ah, yeah, that's true. By the time he got to the point where he couldn't stop mm-hmm. laughing, yeah, he couldn't stop making 
crappy like, jokes. I just don't get what they thought it was going to add to anything. Well, what I think is behind the decision is... So TNG, it's a syndicated TV show. So if Data's going to experience emotion in a given episode, he kind of has to not experience it by the end of the episode because it's a syndicated show and you're supposed to be able to just jump in on any episode and watch it and be able to... Everything's supposed to reset by the end. Yeah, TNG did a good job of letting the characters progress but still keeping the broadly episodic nature of it. So they would refer to previous missions, but it would never matter because everybody was more or less the same. They were still guys dealing with a crisis, mm-hmm. whatever that crisis was in that given episode. And it did that really well. It was kind of the pinnacle of that kind of storytelling. So what I think is, once they got to the film, it's like, hang on, we don't have to reset for next week anymore. We can mm-hmm. get data emotion and keep it. Okay. I can see the logic, but it does seem a bit kind of strange that you'd have a character, possibly who is a certain way all the way through a TV show, and then just to try and make a massive departure from that. It's also like Brent Spiner cut loose because he's really good when he gets the chance to do these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. He's very versatile and so yes. they give him that chance. But Data is used better in almost every other film. Right. It's certainly in First Contact, he's, he's very well used. Insurrection, he's up and down. Nemesis. I like his uses in Nemesis as well. Yeah, my memory of him in this wasn't wasn't like I thought... In fact, I probably remembered liking him in this because I, I do like him as a character as well. But yeah, like I said, just watching it again, it's more difficult to watch now for some reason. I don't know. I don't know if I just grown out of it or something. Well, I, I love <laughs> the scene where he hates the drink but loves hating the drink. <laughs> yeah. That's a good scene. That's very funny. Mr. Tricorder, not quite so funny. No. <laughs> <laughs> and his Patrick Stewart impression is very good as well. Yeah, that is. <laughs> you agree? Yeah, they don't do enough with, again, Data's emotion thing. It's funny when he finds a cat at the end, mostly because if you know that Brent Spiner doesn't like cats. He does seems to be able to handle them quite well, and I was admiring the way the cat kind of was acting in the scene where it walks along the table from Geordie to Data, and you're like, oh, it's, you know, this, is, this cat is playing ball. It is <laughs> being petted. It's kind of nuzzling up to people quite nicely. I suppose that's showbiz cats for you. Or it was take 500, and it was like, finally... <laughs> yeah, maybe they just rubbed enough catnip on each of them to encourage it to do that. See, so yeah, Data had a cat in the show as well, and it was Spot, but it's quite funny because it changes gender and species in different episodes. As part of the narrative? or No, no, just <laughs> you know, one episode it's one particular species of cat, another it's a different species of cat. So it's either a shape-shifting life form, or since Data has no emotional connection to these cats, he keeps accidentally killing them and just getting new ones. <laughs> he just doesn't know, yeah. <laughs> think either could be true that's one of those things you don't really think about it when you're watching a syndicated tv show because especially at the time you're probably not re-watching the old episodes as much so you won't really notice mm-hmm. yeah so we're kind of on the theme of loss feeds through picard because he loses his family but doesn't really do anything with it kirk dies which is a shame i guess it felt like a bigger deal when i was younger and then i was just kind of struck by how matter of fact it was the fact that he just well, apparently dies twice in this. <laughs> yeah, well, he dies once, and the other time he's put in a temporal stasis thing, so... But he, presumably the characters who knew him in the time in which he disappeared reacted as if he had died. You would imagine so, yeah. But it's funny because the original series characters do appear in The Next Generation. Scotty appears in one episode, 
And one of the first things he says is, I, the Enterprise, I bet Jim Kirk herself brought the old girl out of mothballs. It's like, you were there when he died. <laughs> uh, and Spock doesn't, well, he mentions him, but he doesn't mention him in the context of having died. It's, this is the film that finally answers what happened to James T. Kirk. I was conflating the bit where they all go down and there's the big hole in the side of the ship and they're kind of staring out into where they assume his body has flown. I was conflating that in my mind with the bit in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade where the three older characters all kind of assume that Indy's gone over the edge of the cliff with the tank (laughs) and then he just walks up behind them and kind of peers out as well to look at what they're looking at. And I was... So we expected Kirk to just turn up Yeah, Kirk was just going to walk out from behind Chekhov and be like, so what's up? (laughs) (laughs) I was in the other deflector control room. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That would have been funny. It would have ruined the rest. Well, would it have ruined the rest of the film? I suppose it would have ruined the film that they were trying to make. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would have quite like that though. Kirk's death. Well, he falls with a bridge rather than falling off a bridge. But Arthur <laughs> Shatner wanted Kirk's final words to be "Bridge on the Captain," but they didn't. That's apocryphal. Yeah, and then Picard buries him on a random mountaintop on a random planet. Yeah, about that, did like he he dragged his corpse all the way up there? Yeah, well, I was wondering that myself, but and presumably all those small stones as well, because it didn't look as if there were that many out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it could have just been a memorial that he chose to leave. Maybe his body was beamed up by one of the ships or whatever. Perhaps it was be an odd thing to do. It's like, yeah, well, he saved this planet, so you know, I guess his final resting place is here. I'll leave here and then leave his body to be picked apart by like space coyotes. <laughs> whatever this planet's wildlife is. Astro vultures. Yeah, it could happen. Yeah, I think a lot of people just kind of think, oh, is that it? He's dead, I guess. Let's not mention him again after this point either. The final fight between those three didn't seem all that dynamic, possibly because they're all slightly older gentlemen. (laughs) The old guys kind of just punching each other. (laughs) Yeah, and then he goes back and he's about to fall off this gangway. Picard comes over and saves him. And th- then his next plan is, I'm going back on that gangway. <laughs> <laughs> so it just all feels a bit ignominious because it's just a kind of slow punching match between them. He does a bit of grappling on that bridge. Saves the day. You okay. wouldn't expect any less from him. But then bridge breaks. He falls. Even though I have seen it before, I was still part of me was thinking this can't be it because... <laughs> just feel like falling down a mountainside and probably not even that well not far enough that he's blasted to smithereens he's still alive and awake at the bottom when picard gets to him so his lips bleeding that tells you things are bad. <laughs> just all feels so sort of small scale and yeah you know, just uh you know like he could he should have gone out in some kind of death star consuming reactor core meltdown you mean like uh, chris pines kirk when he's in a heavily irradiated room kicking something yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not much better, really. In some fact, it's not any better. It's disappointing that they didn't find some way to get him on board the Enterprise, and I don't know, maybe he could have fought the Klingons while he was in command of like the Battle Bridge or something. Yeah, and then however he dies, they just shoot him out into space. Yeah, something like that, yeah. They could even have mirrored his death at the beginning of the film by having him blown out into space. 
Yeah, see, that would have been kind of interesting because you would have gone out twice the same way. There's something poetic about that for the death of such an important character. Instead of saving, what, like 250 million lives, which is a lot of lives, but on some planet number four, he dies on planet three or something. Yeah, yeah, it's disappointing and anticlimactic as well. I mean, watching three old guys punch each other on the top of a mountain just yeah, it doesn't matter how many cuts you put in it's just not going to look good I do like the bit where Soren almost trips over a tree branch as well yeah that was good <laughs> and it's like, it's oh, no, we'll just leave it. like that. I didn't see that there <laughs> we'll, we'll just leave it in it's the only tree here and I almost fall over it yeah <laughs> I mean there's a reason they didn't let Patrick Stewart do a lot of the action in the next generation it just looks awkward <laughs> well I suppose when you've got a, a kind of younger cast around you, they can handle that sort of stuff. Yeah, I mean, that's what Riker's for. Mm-hmm. But I do think Soren's quite an interesting villain in some respects. I like the way he's consumed by grief and he'll do anything to sort of, even if it's not real, be back with his family and how the experience of losing them clearly changed him to the point where he's willing to commit mass genocide on planetary scale. True. Because <laughs> he just doesn't well, care. I just think that the fact that Kirk and Picard are so easily able to leave the Nexus behind kind of undercuts Soren's overwhelming desire to get back there. Yeah. And you get the bit with Guinan where it's like, you know, I didn't want to leave either, but I've kind of tried to forget about it, so thanks for bringing it up. <laughs> <laughs> it does sort of answer the question about Guinan, though, because she's very weird in Next Generation. She clearly has a weird sense about things, so she can tell when temporal stuff is going on, and she knows when Q's about and all that kind of stuff. And that kind of explains it. It's like she's still kind of connected to the Nexus, which has this timeless quality. Mm. I mean, they don't actually explain it, but they do explain it. You can infer it from what goes on in the film. Is it one of those concepts that you just shouldn't ask too much about because you just have to accept that there's this ribbon that passes through space every 39, 38? Yeah, yeah, 39.1 years, something like that. And going into it or coming into contact with it just zaps everyone into some temporal rift. Yeah, I mean, it's not the weirdest thing they've ever done. No. <laughs> yeah. so, but, I mean, is that kind of the best approach with a lot of these things, to just think, I don't really need to understand what is going on or how it's going on, just that it is going on? Yeah, I mean, you, you could do a whole film about the implications of the, such a thing and, you know, what is reality and what is temptation and all that. You know, time has no meaning in there. Why would you ever want to leave? And yeah, you could have had a much longer sequence of Picard being in there and enjoying it. Mm-hmm. And then something jarring him and actually taking action to realise that it's that everything he's experiencing is empty because it's not real. Yeah, I can see the pros and cons because, like you say, if you have it, if he's in there longer, then having to make the decision to drag himself away seems like it weighed, would weigh more heavily on him. But at the same time, I do think that that's the boring part of the film. So I think yeah, him, it's, it's him kind boring, of but... in a blissful existence, probably if that's extended any longer, you're a bit like, oh, come on, get on with it. I mean, if you got sucked into the Nexus, would you leave? I don't even know if I would realise that I was in there. My kind of assumption about it is that you end up there and then part of that existence or that blissful ignorance is that you don't even really know what's going on. So it's not as if you've got a conscious decision to make. Yeah, I think you could argue that the realisation that Picard is in there is because he knew about it because he had that conversation with Guinan who used to be in it. 
I suppose. Kirk had no idea. He was just like, oh yeah, this is life now. It's fine. Didn't really think about it. So everyone else that's in there is just happily accepting it? You'd assume so, yeah. But if I was in the Nexus and knew I was in the Nexus, I'd never leave. (laughs) I can understand the temptation. Yeah. It's like, well, I'm never going to die and I get to have whatever life I want. Brilliant. But there is a theme of mortality in there that's not really explored. Is a life that doesn't end really a life? I mean, that's kind of what The Good Place gets into in its final season and does really well. Mm. Uh, I can't comment, I'm afraid. Yeah, Picard kind of covers it to some degree. Uh, says something about how what Soren says to him about time being a predator. Yeah. Whereas he thinks he kind of sums it up at the end. Yeah, as a companion. companion. you not to take anything for granted. Mm. I mean, it's it's a lesson. Almost Picard's thought of the week. (laughs) Listen, kids. Time is a companion. Don't ever take any moment for granted. Yeah, but Soren's time quotes are quite good. The fire one, obviously. Time is a fire in which we burn, and that really knocks Picard for six because he's just heard about his brother and nephew having burned to death. So it's the wrong time to be making that kind of quote. And then the predator thing that constantly stalks you and is waiting to kill you. It's, yeah, you can see that as in, yeah, you're, it's finite and it's only a matter of time before you reach your end point. But... I guess Picard doesn't see that as a bad thing. And that is something that is explored, again, to some degree in the Picard series. If you've not seen it all, I'm not going to spoil it because... You're going to do that on the Picard podcast. Exactly. And I will make my thoughts very clear on what I thought of this first season of Picard at that point. It's kind of a lesson that doesn't really work. And you can see it filtered through Soren, who's been driven mad by the fact that he wants to live forever, even if it is in some kind of fantasy that he knows is a fantasy. It's kind of there but it's not quite there there's also the fact that they're both connected through having their lives altered by the borg that yeah again that's kind of mentioned but then not really explored much is it well it could have been listen soren the borg ruined my life as well and i didn't let it consume me so and there is the sense of a picard speech where he tries to convince soren to do the right thing and i do like that soren's response is just nice try <laughs> <laughs> It may work on your weird syndicated TV villains, but not not me. I'm a film villain. <laughs> and I'm going to blow up the sun. I don't know why he doesn't just get in the Nexus path in a spacesuit and just wait. Yeah, it seems as if there's many solutions to his problem that he could come up with that don't involve blowing up a sun. The bit where Picard's kind of working out what he's going to do, I thought was very matter-of-fact, where he's just like, okay, plot the course. Now, what if we think about this? What about this? And what about this? And it's just like ABC. Yeah, that's what he's doing. We've worked it out. But I love that scene, though. The stellar cartography set is amazing. Does it ever show up anywhere else? So they're in stellar cartography in one episode of The Next Generation, but it's just a room with a console in it. (laughs) But in this, it's like, yeah, we have a budget. We're going to make this set that we're going to use for exactly one scene. (laughs) And it's never going to be seen again. But it's a nice set, and I like the graphics on the screens and stuff. That's... It does, look, it does look good, but I do think he kind of uh, columbos his way through it quite quickly. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty easy to figure out. It's like, uh, what did this destruction of the star do? It's like, okay, this happened, this happened, this happened. He's like, hang on a minute. It doesn't take any other kind of factors into account. It's just like, if X, then Y equals Z. I've got a funny feeling that Soren kind of blames the Borg for everything. He just uses that as an excuse. He gets asked to do the dishes, and he's like, I was going to do the dishes, and then the Borg came. <laughs> I imagine that's how he goes through life. 
That's your reason for everything. You can't use the Borg anymore. Natalie, what did you think of Soren? You think it should have been Kiefer Sutherland? Yeah, absolutely. They dressed him like Kiefer Sutherland in The Lost Boys. I think think it was mainly the hair that was kind of steering you towards that. His whole outfit, the whole demeanour, he was just like a really less paid Kiefer Sutherland. Do you know Malcolm McDowell received death threats on the back of this film? Because he killed Captain Kirk. Oh, like, who even noticed that? (laughs) Anybody that watched it, really. also, like a Trekkie is going to go and do that. <laughs> Why would they leave their house? <laughs> well, they can't right now. No, don't, because now I'm going to get the death threats. <laughs> <laughs> it's the classic Star Trek fan. They can't separate reality from... Why? Just, just because of that action sequence. Plus, he didn't actually kill him. Killed well, he did him. shoot the bridge that then he fell with. Yeah, but he got rescued off of that bridge. And who rescued him? The other captain. And then what did he do? He went back onto Tremble Mountain. So, like, (laughs) he was fine. He knew what he was doing. That was his way out. I think it's funny that it's like, right, I'll go get the control pad, despite the fact that I'm clearly the heavier of the two of us, and that bridge (laughs) is not all that stable. Yeah, maybe he did know what he was doing. Picard's like, I can't let Kirk survive this. He's going to take my job. They're going to give the Enterprise to him instead of me. They should have inserted a sort of clip of him yelling, Antonio! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, whoever you are. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, not an especially great villain. The Klingons that he pals around with, they were in the Next Generation as well. The Juras sisters. They were trying to take over the Klingon Empire. By always, I mean like two or three times. And did they always ride around in 20-year-old, out-of-date spaceships? I don't think you see them on ships an awful lot, actually. But they're doing a lot of manipulating behind the scenes. They could only get their hands on some retro tech. Yeah, falling out of favour, I guess. Mm. But it doesn't really tell you what their plan is. Soren's latching on to them because he can give them the weapon that he's been developing. So they plan to blow up the Klingon sun. Yeah, that was another thing. I found myself wondering what their involvement was all about. And then, again, they were in it and then out of it so quickly that I was just like, okay, maybe I don't need to bother thinking about that. It's kind of weird that you're doing your first, what you probably want to be a a fairly broad appeal movie that hits cinemas. And then it's like, who are we going to have as our villains? It's like, what about these two that were in the TV show? (laughs) (laughs) Like in a couple of episodes. I suppose it does kind of tie it to that and it also... You don't really need to know who they are because they end up blowing up anyway. Yeah, Soren is smart enough to put a camera in Jordy's visor that no one catches. Yeah, but no microphone. No. Yeah, so they get the shield frequency and they exploit that fine, but like they found a way to get through our shields. Okay, first thing we're going to do is rotate the frequency. Yeah, just change the frequency. <laughs> they don't try that. I mean, they could have done something where like Jordy was always looking at the panel or something like that. So they could always just <laughs> change it. He changes it specifically, and then he can change their torpedoes and their the guys in the Enterprise. Like, how are they doing this? Always <laughs> <Yeah>. know. <laughs> that would have at least made a bit of sense, but instead, the Enterprise gets blown up out of sheer incompetence from everyone on board because <laughs> they're not able to just do a simple thing. It is really bizarre. There's basically just one other moment I wanted to kind of touch on was the promotion ceremony. Worf getting promoted. Oh, yeah. 
it's weird. We have a cinema budget and we're going to get this boat and we're going to get these costumes and we're going to do this weird sailing ship scene. Yeah, I suppose logically it does seem as if, yeah, we've got some money to spend on something, so why not go holodeck and make it a water set? Or a- I can't imagine Worf agreeing to this. And I don't think they've ever done it with any... Well, I know they haven't done it with anybody else that got promoted. <laughs> <laughs> Although they talk as if they do. It's like, no, he won't make it. No one ever has. No one ever has. <laughs> no one's ever tried. Well, they did quite like the idea that every time Picard promotes someone, it's like, right, down to the holodeck. <laughs> did you like that bit, Natalie, with, on the ship? Not the spaceship, oh, the sailing God. ship? That confused me so much. Well, the transition's quite good, isn't it? 80 years later, but it's just... Um, I like that they were, like, I mean, that's their recreation time, but also, like, what are they doing? Like, why? (laughs) I feel like it's odd that the movie is that old, because it literally feels like all of the fan fictions that anyone ever imagined for Star Trek was shoved into the movie. I think there's a oh, element of that. Him, let's see him as like an old ship captain. Let's see him in a Victorian period drama. <laughs> let's see him, you know, meet the, the other captain. Let's see three captains. Let's see all these things. Yeah, all, let's see him riding let's see a warp. Prize B, Worf gets promoted. It's like all yeah. this stuff happens. Yeah. yeah. Let's see Captain Kirk. Chopping wood. No, you don't mean, what's that when it's called? When... And dressage. Oh, dressage. You did have good control over that. <laughs> like, legit, that scene is so long when that horse is, like, sauntering up very close by Patrick Stewart. It was just very rad. What a magnificent <laughs> horse, though. I mean, that's prize winning, that right there. Yeah, worth the, like, three million that they paid for it. <laughs> God, that was what he got paid, but you have to admire Shatner for just asking them. Yeah, well, I want the scene where Kirk rides a horse. We can film it on my property and you'll pay me. And <laughs> someone was like, no problem. Off you go. They must have really wanted him in this film. Oh, crazy. <laughs> I feel uh, maybe I'll save that for the wrap up at the end. But yeah, I'll save it for that at the end. When all the senior officers were on the sailing ship, was the Enterprise <laughs> just parked in a space car park somewhere? And they were like, right, none of us needs to be doing anything right now. So we can just let a few ensigns kind of run the show while we're all playing about in the holiday. Well, the Enterprise D had a fairly large crew complement, so there were people that would take command when the senior officers weren't about. So there'd be a shift commander that would be kicking about at that point. But then they all turn up on the bridge when a distress call is received in their holodeck sailing uniforms. And yeah. If I was that ensign sitting at the back of the bridge, I'd be like, the bloody bosses are just pissing about again. You know, they are like, <laughs> you know, it's, up in the press. it's the equivalent when the managers leave at lunchtime and go for a drink and leave you to work for the rest of the afternoon. <laughs> that's, that's what I think's going on there. They've got the money to spend and they spend it, but I can't imagine Worf ever agreeing to this as his promotion ceremony. It's like, can you not just give me the pip and make me a cake? Why this? I don't think his Klingon blood precludes him towards ceremonies and elaborate ritual. Well, if anything, it'd be a Klingon ceremony where they poke him with a hot stick or something. That would be it. But I do like how much of a dick Riker is in that scene when he accidentally, in inverted commas, says, remove the plank. He very clearly meant it. Yeah. It worked out just how he wanted it to. Yeah, and even though everybody says it's not funny, I do find it really funny when Data pushes Crusher into the water as well. (laughs) 
I felt really bad for him because we totally... Because you thought it was funny, but the rest of them were looking at him. What are you doing? I was just a bit like, he's trying to, you know... There would also be probably... And then he gets shot down, so no wonder he's confused about everything. Yeah, there would also probably be someone there that thought it was funny and was like, I can't laugh now. It would be the guy who was cheesing at the back of the bridge when... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's me. (laughs) Although it's quite funny because they did a repaint on this boat they were using for the scene. And the paint wasn't dry when they started shooting it. So when you see Worf trying to climb back up, you see the paint on his knees. (laughs) 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 Things you notice when you've seen the film like three million times. What brings you back to watching it again and again? I'm a Star Trek fan. Every now and again, it's a thing that all Star Trek fans must do where they just decide, I'm going to go through everything again. Even the bad stuff. God. In order to appreciate... In order to appreciate how good TNG gets, you do have to suffer through the first two seasons. Otherwise, you haven't earned how good that show gets. (laughs) Perhaps... (laughs) <laughs> such a masochistic approach <laughs> I don't know, it's one of those things uh, when we did the Arrow finale podcast which may or may not be up by the time this one goes up depending on how much work I do over the next couple of days I talked about how things can have different resonance in your life at different times and I talked about during that one if I'd watched the Arrow finale a year ago it wouldn't have had the same effect on me it had when I watched it this year because of just the direction my life has taken and things that have happened and I find that Star Trek changes the older I get, different things I experience. So even the bad stuff, I look through, look at it through a different lens. And so even this film, I was thinking aspects of it a little bit differently to how I've thought about it before. Thematic stuff, especially when you think about what Picard does in the show Picard and how some of it does link in with what is mentioned in this film, even if it's not explored to any massive degree, but you do still kind of get the sense of something new, even when you've seen it a million times. So I think it does pay to revisit stuff. I mean, I don't know if you get that impression when you rewatch 80s Transformers, Angus, but... <laughs> There's probably a little less to sink your teeth into with that, but I, I, do, I do know what you mean. Some slightly more sort of meaningful or meaty media content, whatever you want to call it, it can mean something different to you depending on the time in your life you're watching it or even with this I've got fond memories of going to the cinema to see it with my mum and this doesn't change the fact that I had a good time watching it then and I enjoyed it as a sci-fi movie as a small kid and now I can watch it and think I don't enjoy it quite as much (laughs) as I'm older but it doesn't take away from the fact that I did have a good time and I have good memories of watching yeah, and I've never ever thought this film is unwatchable. I kind of laugh with it, in effect, that it, kind of how dumb it is. It is definitely a failure, because I don't even know what it's trying to do, never mind yeah. whether it, it succeeds at what it's trying to do, because <laughs> I can't figure out what it's actually doing, even after all this time. And if you ask the writers, they don't really know either. They were just writing stuff. So it's it's just kind of this weird, interesting failure. And there are films that are like that. There's a lot of films where... They're not very good, but you can still sit and watch them because there's just something about them that just makes them compelling, even mm. though they're not very good. Yeah, but would I call this one? Well, it's got different meaning for those? different people. So I think you've seen it's it. It's not for me. You've seen it once, yeah. and it doesn't resonate with you in the same not, way. Not Definitely not in the way that it does with Craig and or you or me. So yeah. what you need to do over the next thirty years is revisit it frequently 
And then <laughs> I, I don't think I will You don't think that you'll that. if you ever see it again, however long in the future it is, you'll think this was, was a massive global crisis going on at the time and you'll be able to kind of put it in context of when you saw it and what it meant to you then. And maybe if I saw maybe a few minutes of it, that would be enough to <laughs> give me those memories, but I don't think I need to bring myself to watching the whole thing again. I mean, I don't know how much of Picard you've actually watched. Ah, uh, well, no spoilers. Like, what episode around? Four? I don't know. Yeah, quite. All right, so you're at the I'm Just Out in Space episode. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think that's where we are. Yeah. So. But I'm really enjoying that. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm not going to spoil specifics, but if you watch the rest of Picard while thinking about some of the things that, I mean, I'm not going to say explored, that are brought up in this film, especially in relation to Picard and the way he thinks about life and the way he contextualises his own grief and things, there is a bit of continuity there. I'm not going to say it's well done, but it's there. And it's just interesting that you can see the parallels with what he goes through in this film and what he goes through in Picard. You'll have seen the first three episodes, how he handles loss or what loss does to him over a period of time. But it's very weird that he lives in the place that his brother and nephew died and doesn't really think about it. Yeah. I hope that this doesn't ruin Picard for me. (laughs) (laughs) But you might see what happens in the rest of the series a bit differently than you otherwise would have now having seen. Yeah. I mean, who's to say? Because I don't know all of the characters and all of that kind of stuff, but Picard's kind of like a little discovery for me. But but it's not Star Trek um, discovery. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. But for me it is. I'm just a bit... I really don't want it to ruin what Picard is, which has probably taken a really long time to get to a point where... It looks good, it sounds good, and it presents itself in a way that it's probably proud of itself. I don't know if the same can be said for some of the other Star Trek things I've seen. And this movie was definitely one of them where a lot of the time I just watched it happen but didn't know why. And on several counts, and why was I watching it? Why does this exist? Why are they doing that? Why is any of this happening to me? <laughs> like, you know... <laughs> the big questions. All the big questions. All, all valid questions. And I don't have the answers. I st- still don't know what this film's really about. <laughs> I don't think it's honestly worth pondering. I think it is. One day I'll latch on to it and I'll be like, this is it. This is what the film is about. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Okay, you can continue to quest for that and search for that. I don't know if it's out there, but... Sure. Well, at some point in the near future, I'll decide I really need to revisit all of Next Generation. Why? <laughs> and when you do, you'll be midway through it and you'll have no idea if you're in the Nexus or not because you'll be like, this is Nirvana for me. Well, actually, I think TNG is a good antidote to the modern world in a lot of ways because it is this optimistic look at the future because even Picard's very bleak. Nothing's working out for anybody, but... TNG is dripping in that Star Trek message of optimism and collaboration and all that stuff. And I think that's something we're missing in today's world. And I think that's why Picard takes the shape it does, because we don't live in that world anymore and people can't see themselves living in that world anymore. But should it be abandoned? I mean, this is a conversation for the Picard podcast, but should it be abandoned? I don't think so. It's hard to say when you don't have all the facts. (laughs) (laughs) We'll just have to tune into the Picard podcast. Yeah, Yeah, no, I I would quite like to finish watching that. Well, if you can get it finished before 
it's organised and want to appear, I would quite like your I don't know this character very well at all perspective. Mm, I do like offering that perspective. (laughs) (laughs) All the time. Because it's a perspective I wrestled with the whole run of the show. Because obviously I know the characters inside out, I know the history inside out, and I just wonder how the show resonates with people that don't. Mm. I mean, it's an answer I can never get for myself because I can never have that perspective. Yeah, you're too close to it. Yeah. Yeah. But I am interested to see how people that didn't typically watch TNG or don't know that much about it are, are feeling yeah. about it. TNG. That's what that makes me think of. <laughs> <laughs> TNG. So. <laughs> so we should probably wrap up. I'm not sure we've answered any questions that people had. I think they haven't tried to answer themselves. But <laughs> yeah, continue to exist. Yeah, but we have, at worst, or at best, created something that is discussing this film. Yeah, <laughs> almost as worthless as the movie. <laughs> no, I think you're different to the film and that we achieved what we set out to do. <laughs> so proud. Oh, take that, everybody. Take that. Ronald Deemer and Brannon Braga. Uh, Ronald Deemer is actually a very good writer. If you've seen Outlander, he's a showrunner. I haven't. Well, he's a showrunner. He was a showrunner on Battlestar Galactica. He went on to help showrun Deep Space Nine, which is some consider the pinnacle of Star Trek. So he also wrote you? First Contact, which My... is infinitely better than this. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So, Natalie, do you want to give us a bit of a wrap-up on your thoughts on this film? As a first-time viewer. To see this movie for the first time, it might almost be worth it, just for curiosity's sake, but as soon as those words left my mouth, I was like, I don't mean that. I don't know, I'm a bit conflicted. It's not even enjoyable enough to promote that other people watch. It's very strange. I think strange is about the best summary that you can... Yeah, I'm closing my eyes now, and all I can see is... Patrick Stewart dressed as a captain of a ship. And not that, a spaceship. Not a spaceship. And that, I don't know if that should be my closing thoughts. You know? From the whole movie. You're but that's my, maybe that's my ribbon experience. <laughs> maybe that's my next. I don't know. I mean, speaking of takeaway, what about Kirk's eggs and toast? What was that? He was just making eggs and toast. Oh, eggs, eggs on toast. Making large eggs. I can't remember oh, what kind yeah. of eggs they were. Yeah. Vegetarian eggs. Yeah. Okay. The, the oh, old yeah. Star Trek tradition of let's have something that's familiar and then put something alien sounding in front of it. <laughs> yeah. Tangerian bat, for example. It was very strange. And oh, I just, I don't, I don't know. I feel like to think about it anymore. <laughs> I know that I will think about it. It'll probably keep me awake in like three weeks' time. I'll probably wake up and be like, what was that? (laughs) I don't know. I I always have these questions when I see films that I I question. How did it get made? Because I think about things that I want to make in my life and I think about the probability of that happening. And then I get really simultaneously inspired and distraught because I think I'll never get to make what I want to make even though it will be better than this movie, <laughs> TV show, you know, Strikers Program, 
or and I think well that got made and I'll never get my stuff made so then I must be worse so I don't know I go through this weird flux of super positive and super negative roller coaster whenever I see a film or a tv show or whatever that really why was it made <laughs> I got really heavy sorry but I have these thoughts. I just think I shouldn't be thinking, oh, wow, if that got made. It's like when Donald Trump became president and everyone was like, that's why you should lie on a CV because look at what can happen. You know, but at the same time, that's terrifying. And bye. <laughs> I'm going to go sit was, uh, in a dark yeah. space. <laughs> you really went in a, into a temporal nexus with that one. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Angus, what do you want to say as a wrap-up statement or a series of statements? Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll try and ramble on for a bit. As I stated previously, I've got fond memories of this. I came into watching it with Natalie thinking, I remember sort of describing it to her, saying, you know, you've got Kirk, you've got Picard, it's the old, it's the new, and kind of hyping it up for myself as well. And I didn't come into this podcast with any intention of it being a takedown or ragging on it quite as much as we have. <laughs> I didn't intend that either. It because, just happened. Because I, yeah, like I say, I've got fond memories of it. And I think those are probably the best thing about this movie to me. <laughs> there are good bits in it. There's smallish sections, some jokes that were quite good, some bits and pieces that I quite like. Shatner's technique with an axe is good. Um <laughs> But overall, yeah, it's confusing. And I don't think that's on me. I think that's on the film. <laughs> I kind of looked up afterwards. I was ch- I was having a look on YouTube. I, I quite like listening to podcasts about movies. You know, like, how did this get made? Natalie had kind of asked the question, not referring to the podcast, though. I think it says more about this movie that there aren't any kind of memes. There's no funny videos on YouTube. There's no podcasts about this because it doesn't do enough or it isn't bad enough mm. it's just not enough of a joke for people to revisit it and so yeah that's all a bit of a <laughs> kind of a meh way to sum it up but <laughs> I've got good memories of it I like some bits of it it's just not bad enough to be funny and it's not good enough to be kind of revered I think you should watch the let's play of the video game it was a completely different ending yeah it's really weird yeah there's like no resonance kind of what I've already said really I find this film interesting because it is doing so much yet so little at the same time it introduces concepts that could be interesting and then does nothing with them it adds things to the characters that could be interesting and does nothing with them it has a villain that could be interesting and does nothing with him it doesn't follow any particular character the plot is a plodding kind of mediocre episode plot that also just has the enterprise blowing up in it it looks pretty good in places some places not so much. The Enterprise crashing sequence is pretty cool. Just all practical and stuff like that. But it's far from the best Star Trek film. And it's far from the worst Star Trek film as well. That honour goes to the motion picture. Or the motionless picture. Or the slow motion picture. Whatever you want to call it. <laughs> <laughs> I would watch this over Into Darkness any day of the week. That's <laughs> I mean, this film is just boring. or It's just, you know, it's unfocused. That, that film is offensive. So... I'll well, I can't wait until you suggest that we cover that for one of these podcasts. We already did. It was like the second thing we ever did. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Just to get it out the way early. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, the first two podcasts we did were Star Trek 09 and Into Darkness. 
because Beyond was just coming out at the time. So I'm not going to suggest it again because I've already done it and I don't ever need to watch it again, which is really comforting. But I will watch this again. Probably. Have you paid to own a copy of it? No. But I no. Was gifted a copy of it. Ah, uh, okay. All right, all right. I thought I was yeah. going to catch you out there, but as a joke, I've never asked you that before as well. Yeah, as a joke, I was gifted a copy of it, and <laughs> I'm laughing to this day. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll watch this film again quite happily because I find parts of it interesting. I think Shatner's good in it. I think Patrick Stewart's good in it. I think the rest of the cast, for what they get given to do, are pretty good in it. So it's quite an interesting failure, and. Ultimately, it just passes by just like an energy ribbon and it comes around every now and again and you revisit it and it passes you by and you forget about it and that's pretty much it. I think that's possibly the best analogy you could come up with for this film. It is like the energy ribbon. It was deftly done. Yeah, quick and forgettable. (laughs) So see you in 39.5 years. 39 point whatever years. So... Would you care to step on the transporter pad and I'll try and beam you back to your isolation booths in one piece? Beam me up, Kriggy. I feel like I'm going to collapse just like Jordy <laughs> did when he got beamed back in. <laughs> yeah, let's not stand on the pad and catch him. We'll just wait till we <laughs> Poor Jordy. Also, why does Soren capture him? He asks him a question about the compound that he knows everything about. <laughs> now is not the time for yeah, that question. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's another Maybe. question. But we'll ponder that for the revival generations podcast in 39 years. Yeah. Which still won't be in time for First Contact Day. I was going to ask about that. Funny if it coincided perfectly. Negative 43 years until... No, it's not negative 43 years. It is just 43 years until... (laughs) It's the negative 43rd anniversary. So everyone, happy First Contact Day and I hope you enjoy whatever way you choose to celebrate such an occasion. Yeah, in your bathroom, in your bedroom, in your kitchen, in your living room. For some, that might be the same room. (laughs) But, yeah, happy lockdown. Happy lockdown and (laughs) happy first contact day. (laughs) (laughs) Keep your arms and legs and ears and stuff inside the transporter pad while I try this again. Until we socially distance again. Energising. So that was our discussion about Star Trek Generations. Thanks to YouTubers Captain Meat Shield and Samo Studios for their excellently arranged Star Trek The Next Generation music covers. As always, if you like what you heard, then please do hit that subscribe button on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, or any major podcasting apps. If you want to talk Star Trek Generations, Star Trek, or anything else, then you can hail us on Facebook or Twitter under Neil Before Blog, or leave a comment on neilbeforeblog.co.uk. Live long and prosper. Happy First Contact Day. Stay safe and join us on the next Neil Before Pod. Engage. Engage.